I had been catching up with a friend at a reunion for a theater we had worked at a decade ago, and we were having a good time and laughing and reminiscing. And one of those natural lulls in the conversation, I turned to say goodbye to someone. And when I turned back, my friend was shuffling a deck of cards. Hey, would you like to see a magic trick? No, I would not. He started laughing and asked if I was being serious. Yes, I was being serious. Magic tricks to me are infuriating. You're gonna talk down to me like I don't know anything, make me feel like I can't trust what I do know, actively lie to my face, and then expect me to clap at the end? Magic tricks are a nightmare. I'm only interested in seeing them if you're gonna tell me how it works. And he nodded his head and he said, sure, I'll show you how it works. So as a person who has convinced a magician to reveal all their secrets, I can tell you from my experience that if it's too good to be true, it probably is, feels like good advice. I love a managed expectation. In fact, in light of this being my first sermon at Bethany, please feel free to just take a moment and give yourself the gift of a managed expectation. Managed expectations are wise. They are self-care. They are community care. Can you really be too disappointed if you weren't expecting too much? I'm a big fan. Knowing I was closing out our do not be afraid, peace in scary times, courage to face our fears series, I started to wonder about the moments when words of hope don't actually feel comforting, when good news or hoping becomes the thing that feels the scariest. We warn each other against hope. Don't get your hopes up. It's the hope that kills you. Don't say it out loud or it won't come true. Hope for the best, but plan for the worst. Hope makes us vulnerable to disappointment and pain and lament. And I think that's why it's both important and needed. To hope is not static, it is a cycle of honest vulnerability and strengthening. Hope requires vulnerability, just as drinking water and thirsting are part of the same cycle. And while I think I can recognize how I still try to temper my hope to protect myself from disappointment, I think I can also attempt to temper my hope in order to protect God from my disappointment. I grew up adding the caveat to my prayers of, if it be your will, less because I was concerned about something being God's will and more because I was concerned about what I would feel toward God if it all fell apart. Taking on this topic has meant that I've had to come face to face with ideas I hold about how I should feel. 
because I'm fine admitting to you that I have a lot of skepticism when I'm talking to a magician. But this sermon has made me bump into ingrained messages I've heard about doubt and fear and skepticism within my own faith journey being coded as bad. I've heard, do not be afraid, described as the most often used command in the Bible, a mandate used over 350 times to not feel fear. And even though if I was talking to one of the toddlers that I've taught, I would make sure that they knew that feelings are not good or bad and feelings can help us understand ourselves better. Still, instead of letting my fear tell me that my safety is important to me, encountering fear can still make me think I'm not doing it right. I'm not trusting God perfectly, even though God is perfectly trustworthy. That's a me issue. And uh, I don't want to be a Sarah who laughed at God or a doubting Thomas or a ye of little faith. I don't want to be like Zechariah, who said, prove it to an angel, and then was punished by not being able to speak because he didn't immediately believe the good news that he was hearing. These are not my heroes or my faith goals. I want to be a small shepherd up against a giant saying, you come against me with sword and spear, but I come against you in the name of God and the battle belongs to God. And I wanna be an Esther knowing that I'm ready in this place and in this moment for such a time as this. And I wanna be Peter when he gets out of the boat and he starts to walk on water, but not Peter when he starts to sink. Do not be afraid as a mandate, ironically, holds fear and shame for me because it is an impossible ask. But when I walk into a room and you have headphones on and you turn around and scream and I say, oh, don't be afraid, it's just me, I'm not saying your fear is bad. It's actually a statement of validation. It acknowledges your fear as existing. And I hope it, it invites you to also know that you are safe with me. I am not here to hurt you. If I use that as a hermeneutical lens, a tool of interpretation and understanding, then it helps me to reframe, do not be afraid, as really saying, I know this is scary and Jeremiah 1.8, I know this is scary and I am with you and I will rescue you. Isaiah 41.13, I know this is scary and I will help you. Luke 2.10, I know this is scary and I bring you good tidings of great joy which shall be for all people. So maybe I need to take another look at those Bible buffoons. Sarah's pained sarcastic laughter in Genesis when she hears that she will bear children in her old age. God doesn't get mad. 
In fact, there's kind of this sassy retort of why the laughter is anything too wonderful for God. I actually love that. And we don't see any punishment or consequence for Sarah not immediately hoping. Her laughter is a part of Sarah's story arc. When she later laughs with joy when Isaac is born, Isaac's name means one who laughs. And doubting Thomas is not what Jesus calls him. It's what we call him. Jesus calls him Thomas. And when Thomas says, look, I'm not believing that Jesus is resurrected unless I see it for myself, Jesus, Jesus says, hey, Thomas, <laughs> here you go. Okay. But what about all those times in the Gospels that Jesus says, ye of little faith? Like, obviously, he's disappointed in somebody's failure of faith, right? Jesus is walking on water at night. Everybody starts freaking out, thinking it's a ghost. Peter is like, if it's you, call me out onto the water. And Jesus says, take courage. It's me. Step out of the boat. Come. So far for me, that's tracking with my I know this is scary and lens. So Peter gets out, eyes on Jesus, walks on water towards him. And then. Peter looks down at the waves and begins to sink. And Jesus reaches his hand out and catches him and pulls him up and says, O oh, ye of little faith, why did you doubt? And initially, yes, I hear that as negative. You really messed this up, Peter, come on. But is it? What if... I heard it like a term of endearment, like, like Jesus knows just how tiny Peter's cup of faith is, but it's just so precious to him that even with that tiny cup, he still got out of the boat. Peter's trying and learning, and maybe it's like calling a kid little one when they fall. Or when people add ito, meaning little, to Spanish words as a term of endearment for a spouse. Little faith. Faith ito. Suddenly, this story changes from Jesus saying, you messed up again, Peter, to saying, hey, buddy, did you see what you were doing? You got out of the boat. What changed? What got scary? And it turns verses like Matthew 6.30 into, if that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, my little faithito? Holding the vulnerability of our dreams and hopes is still scary, but it's not bad to be scared. Kate Bowler, a theologian with chronic cancer, explains how damaging hope just as optimism can be when it is only allowed to be something perfect and something far off in the future. If her only hope is a miraculous healing of her body on earth or a freedom from pain after death, then it is not enough hope. Hope cannot live 
in the oasis of a distant future when we thirst for it every day. Bowler says that hope instead is the beauty that bubbles up around us. It is remembering the things that have sustained us in the past. And when the past is a thing that is painful, hope is being present and noticing the beauty that bubbles up today. Zachariah is alone in the temple, likely the one time that he will ever serve in the temple in his lifetime. And he's offering the, in, the incense, representing the prayers of the people, a people living in an occupied land, a people hoping for liberation, a people hoping for a Messiah, a people hoping to hear from God again. It has been 400 years since Malachi, the last prophet. And Zechariah also carries with him every day the hope of a child for him and Elizabeth. All of those are big, vulnerable hopes. And he turns around and he sees an angel and he is overwhelmed by fear. And this angel says, I know this is scary, Zechariah, and your prayers have been heard. You're going to have a child. Everything that you've wanted will happen. There will be such outrageous joy and your child will be filled with the spirit of God and likened to Elijah and he will see the Messiah. Your son will proclaim that the Messiah has come, the covenant has been fulfilled, and that liberation is here. Okay, I can understand why someone would say, prove it. Are you an angel or a magician? This is too good to be true. However, I no longer think that's what's happening here. My opinion on Zachariah has completely changed this week. I also no longer think we see a punishment in this passage. I now read this story and think Zachariah shows us a picture of a present and grounded hope that bubbles up around him, like Bowler describes. And I want to be like him. Zechariah in the temple is the opening image that Luke gives us, the opening image to the story of Jesus. And it, it would have been deeply meaningful for Jewish people hearing this story. Scholars think Luke was written around 85 AD, putting it very close to when the temple was destroyed by the Roman Empire in 70 AD. So there is a living memory of this location with many listeners and a reverent nostalgia and longing. A Jewish listener would know the smell of the incense. They would picture the quiet darkness of the room. They would see to Zechariah's left a menorah with seven flames, representing the days of creation when God formed humanity in their image and said, it is good. And in front of him, the foundation stone, where God has made and protected their covenants with the people of Israel. And on that stone is built the Holy of Holies, just behind a curtain, the Ark of the Covenant. 
the Ten Commandments given to a people wandering in the desert. And it is this threshold between earth and the divine where the presence of God resides. The next time that Luke would reference this place in the temple is 22 chapters later when that curtain separating the Holy of Holies tears in half at the moment of Christ's death. And to the right of Zechariah, where we are told specifically that the angel appears would be a table holding 12 specially made loaves of bread representing the 12 tribes of Israel that were shaped to look like the Ark of the Covenant with open lids. And they were extremely difficult to make because they had to remain whole and they could never be broken. And they represented God's abundant care for the people, that everything they had came from God. And three times a year when everyone would travel to Jerusalem, the priest would show the bread to the people and declare, look how beloved you are by God. When we later see Jesus breaking bread with his 12 disciples at the Last Supper and saying, this is my body, we hear echoes of that symbolism. Look how beloved you are by God. As a priest, Zachariah's job is speaking for the people, but this angel is giving him a message to speak for God. Prophecy, something no one has seen in 400 years. Asking how he'll know when he's prophesying is just a great question to have on your first day on the job. And this angel says, okay, sure. You need proof. So here's the proof of Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a prophet who spoke for God, who had visions of God's presence leaving the old temple and coming to the Jews in exile. Ezekiel spoke of a future hope of restoration. And for 12 years, Ezekiel could only speak when he was prophesying. His silence was how the people knew God was speaking. At the end of this chapter in Luke, Zechariah speaks again when he declares his son's name is John. And Zechariah goes on to prophesy. It is his silence that tells us that God is speaking. After 400 years, and the prophecy is no longer set in the future. It has come to pass. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has looked favorably on his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a mighty savior for us. In the temple, Zechariah was surrounded by the bubbling hope of God's loving faithfulness. Stories that would have been a comfort to him in the years prior when his prayers felt unheard and he was disappointed. But today, as the angel speaks, that bubbling hope emboldens him to meet his deepest, wildest, 
and most unhinged hopes. Julian of Norwich said, if there's anywhere on earth a lover of God who was always kept safe, I know nothing of it, for it was not shown to me. But this was shown, that in falling and rising again, we are always kept in the same precious love. I wish I could keep you safe from everything that scares you. I know that scary things will happen. I know it is scary. And you are kept. Safe in the heart of a loving God, meaning that nothing can pry you out of that deep embrace and acceptance. No fear, no failure, no prejudice of our world and no shame you hold. Look how beloved you are by God. Hope bubbles around you, my little faithy toe, because you remain deeply loved and valued by God. And that is a hope that can never be too high.